Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. So excited to tell you about something that our friends at YCharts have put together. They do their final research piece of the year every December. Uh, it's the top charts this year, the top 23 charts of 2023. It is a curated slide deck capturing the essence of the year gone by, the highs, the lows, everything that happened, all kinds of uh, market and economic storylines, key visuals. They brought in some other industry thought leaders to uh, add to the mix here. And I think it's it's something that you're probably going to want to check out. So you can go to the show notes. You can click the link to get your free copy of the top 23 charts of 2023, courtesy of Y Charts. And remember, you get 20% off your initial Y Charts professional subscription when you start today. So all you have to do is tell them that you were sent here by What Are Your Thoughts, uh, our YouTube show where we use all these Y Charts visuals, and uh, you can you can save 20%. Okay, tonight's show, good friend of mine, uh, really, really bright and really fun to hang with, uh, Logan Motoshami. Logan is a housing market analyst for Housing Wire. He does a podcast, he's a blogger, he covers the economy, he covers what's happening with rentals, new homes, existing homes. And I got to ask him a whole bunch of uh, fun questions about the year that was and what his outlook is for 2024. So you're going to have a lot of fun with that conversation. And then immediately following, it's Michael Batnick, it's me, it's what are your thoughts? We talk about buy and hold versus technical analysis. We talk about tech stocks and the amount of CapEx uh, that S&P 500 companies are currently deploying we're talking about Merrill Lynch, which is, I don't want to say, use the word desperate, but it seems like they are really, uh, I'll say, de- they're, I think they're desperate for new advisors to join the firm. I think that's fair to say. Talk about financial stocks, all sorts of stuff. So stick around for that. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. I'll send you to the show right now. to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, we're here with my pal, Logan Motoshami. Logan is a housing... Is it too much if I say housing market genius? a lot, right? Uh, you know, uh, lead analyst. How about that? <laughs> Sometimes right, genius can you, get crazy out there. Let me give you a real intro. Logan Motoshami is a lead analyst for Housing Wire and is a regular contributor on the Housing Wire Daily Podcast. He's been in the mortgage industry for two decades and is the author of a blog called Financial Truth, which you can find at loganmotoshami.com. All right. Two things happened this year. The first is that the average rate on a 30-year mortgage went from a low of 6% in February to over 8% in October, and actually up from 2.6% in early 2021. At the same time, the ITB, which is the U.S. Home Construction ETF, these are home builder stocks, ran up 48%. I have always been told that those two things could not or should not happen simultaneously. What the hell went on this year? 
You know, ho- housing has been very confusing after 2020 uh, in general because of COVID. And you everything. said it. But <laughs> what happened last year, I think if you truly believe that inventory in America is low and it's very hard to increase active listings, which has been a big part of my work for over 10 years now, then there is one sector of the economy that actually would benefit in that situation. It's the builder stocks, right? And for the longest time in the previous expansion, it was like the weakest new home sales cycle ever. And whenever rates went up, builder stocks went down. Here, we had a very unique once in a lifetime uh, situation. Last November, like people were familiar with my work, I said that the entire housing market changed November 9th, 2022. The builder stocks bottomed and then they started to rally. The builder's confidence index started to rally. And how how was that? Well, number one, the 10-year yield started to fall from last year. Uh, uh, the builders got that benefit right away. But active inventory in America for the existing home sales market, which is their biggest competitor, was still low. So then when rates went up again, guess what sector can offer lower rates? The builders could, why? Right? I think the the misunderstanding was people didn't realize the builders' profit margins were much higher uh, this time around than they were in the last decade. So they have what I call the, the ability to be efficient sellers. Monthly supply went up on them, so they got to move product. They're not the March of Dimes. They're here to make money, right? So they cut prices, they lowered rates. The existing home sales market, though, isn't very efficient in that. So the builders are telling everyone, they're almost taunting people, hey, come on down, brand new house, you don't have to do anything, we'll offer you uh, lower mortgage rates. And then think about it in this context. We have over 157 million people working. We have a, a population of 335 million people. Active inventory, the listings, how we track it, it's a little bit different than the National Socialist Realtors, it got down to 240,000 in March of 2022. That's the total national inventory of homes for sale? Single family homes available for sale in March of 2022 got to 240,000. So how many months of inventory is that? Is that like three months? For for the for the existing home sales market is about 2.5, 2.6 months. So it wasn't oh it wasn't God. a lot. Yeah. But what happened when home sales crashed for the existing home sales market? We went from six and a half million down to four million. People just assumed, well, the builders are done, they're finished, inventory is gonna skyrocket, home prices are gonna crash, that's it. That's what I would have assumed. Yeah, that's what everybody assumed. But <laughs> After 2010, I think I think one of the things that we don't ever talk about here, not just for the housing market, but in the U.S. economy, qualified mortgage in 2010 changed the game for everything. People that are buying homes, they get 30-year fixed mortgage, fixed debt costs, or wages rise, they stay in their homes. Their financial profiles look great. And for some people, for some reason, we can't get people to believe this, even though the data has shown this for 12 years. So naturally, they think everyone's going to rush to sell their homes and everything. It's not the case. But now that mortgage rates got higher, now the builder's monthly supply spiked up. But people didn't realize that the builder's active available units, like their homes that are ready to, to be sold, currently right now is 76,000. It's nothing. That's it. For the for new homes, 76. It's the whole industry. For the whole industry <laughs> right there. Those are the, oh, that's about, and that's almost back to normal. So the builders don't ever flood a market. I think that was another confusing thing. People thought the monthly supply spiking up to over uh, uh, 10 months meant that millions of homes. No, it never even got to 200,000 during the housing bubble crash year. So the builders managed their supply and now they could go, wait a second, look at all this excess profit margins we have. Let's lower rates. 
Existing home market couldn't do that, so they got some buyers to come in. And I think the an, another big wait, wait Logan, can we can we double click on that? So the home builders were able to use their profit margins and their balance sheets to lower the mortgage yes. that a buyer of a new home would be able to pay. Yes, making that an even more competitive Absolutely. product than the existing Advantage, home. Advantage disadvantage. They so had now a you get a you get a brand new home. Nope, nobody nobody grossed it up by living in it, right? You don't have to renovate it. You don't have to rip walls down. You don't have to rip out carpeting. Okay, great. Plus, you don't want to pay an eight, you don't want to borrow at 8%. We get it. You shouldn't. You could borrow at X percent. We will, we will, we will help fund that. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Of course, these stocks are up. Yeah. And, and that I think was the, you know, kind of the missing link in the economic discussion here. But we also have to remember in 2022, new home sales weren't very high. I mean, adjusting to the cancellation rate, we're back like to 1996 level. So it doesn't take much to move the needle. And these stocks were basically, they're always been trading cheap. They got ridiculously cheap. So all of a sudden the builder's confidence started to rise and then everybody's deer in the headlights. You know, wait a second, the, we're going into a recession. The, the builders are done. Housing is over us. And during this entire time, the builder's confidence index started to rise on them. That means single family permits are growing again. That all this recession talk that housing leads to recession, like within three or four months went against them and people just stood there not believing it. And the builder stocks- This is, one of, the biggest, this is one of the biggest surprises of the year. And I love this because it's such a great example. And there were so many- I'm going to add this to my list where conventional wisdom just gets completely turned on its head. So on the surface, if you would have asked most people in January, you would have, you would have said, all right, I'm going to spot you this information. Fed funds is going to five and a half percent. You would have said this, this sector is toast. Toast over. And, and I would have, and I, that's now, what, thank God I don't make these guesses for everyone a living. That's what, I would have, that's what I would have guessed. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone would have. Now, what I tried to do last year in 2020 uh, the, toward the end is say, okay, the housing market dynamics have changed. You guys are just going to have to trust me on this. We're going to track you've, the weekly you've data. You've been all over this. You have, to, yeah. you have to go with the builder's confidence. Now, the the other thing right now that's that's even more confusing, the builder's confidence index has been falling recently as mortgage What is the builder's confidence so index? Have, what are the inputs to that? The, basically, future sales, um, business activity, uh, how much is it? Cost to build the homes. It's a it's a survey. Okay. It's a very efficient survey because it isn't tainted by ideologicals like, like the small business okay. index. But here, it's basically, hey, we we're here to make money. This is that this environment is good for us. Except now, here's an here's another crink into everything. A lot of that survey is smaller builders, not the big tr publicly traded companies that have all this excess profit margin. So when the builders' confidence started to fade, and the you know we saw a correction in the builder stocks, everyone would say, "Okay, that's it. It's over eight percent." Builders, pay, hey, listen, we, we have to pay a little bit more to 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 get it done, but we can do this yeah. still. And it wasn't like sales collapsed in a very big fashion, and all of a sudden rates went down again, and the builders, whatever, up twenty seven percent, you know, uh, since the lows of October. Right. So if you just look at it in that light, that the builders have a very unique advantage, in a sense, higher mortgage rates help them because obviously active inventory is low. 
They have a nice product. They can lower rates. Try getting an existing home seller to give up, you know, a lot of their uh, 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 gains to uh, lower lower mortgage rates. They were never stressed, and I think this is another critical part. The existing home sellers, in the, which is the massive marketplace, they never felt the pressure to no, really cut just sit prices there. or offer. Discounts. They could just sit there. They could just sit there. Yeah, they could just sit there. I mean, the days on market is. 23 days. Well, that's, the last that's what froze. That's what froze the housing market. The lack of portability of, of, a, of a mortgage. Um, but now we're seeing some innovation around that where the banks are, I think, facilitating a way that a seller could move a mortgage. Do I have that right? Well, that's always been there. It's just, it's very limited. Okay. Like I, I'd be surprised if, if we ever get like 5,000 home sales in that. It's, it's just, not gonna be it's popular. not as easy it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be popular, but here, here's, here's, this is why the qualified mortgage law comes into play. Most sellers are buyers, right? And everyone has to qualify for their, for their mortgage. So when rates went up so much, so fast, people think it's like a mortgage rate lockdown. It's a total housing cost lockdown because you don't, you can't list your house if you're not and buy another one, unless you're qualified. Huh. So unlike the 2000, the 2007 period, people forget this inventory was rising for seven years while sales were rising up until 2005. So people think of it's that kind of marketplace, but after qualified mortgage, you don't tell your wife, hey, listen, we're going to put our house in the market. We can't buy a house, but we're just going to sell it and then wait. No. I yeah. mean, everyone has very low total housing costs. So the the fact that we haven't dealt with inflation in so long, people forget your house is the best hedge against inflation, not because of the asset value, it's because of that mortgage payment. Right. So and you're here not it paying is, rent. Inflation, <laughs> and you're not paying rent. And your infl inflation goes up, your wages go up. But that 30-year fixed mortgage that you refinanced in 2012, 2016, and 2020, your house cost is so low that you're chill. Yeah. I mean, homeowners have been chill this entire time. It's you know what I don't hear people doing anymore? I don't hear anyone being like, do you know what I could sell my house for? And no one's doing that because they know, they know the second question is, okay, well, what are you, where are you going to live? <laughs> oh, yeah. I have to yeah, buy someone else's house. <laughs> See, it's see people. People forget about that aspect. You don't sell your home to be homeless. You got to find something else. This Earth? is not a liquid marketplace, you know. So, <laughs> it's been in the data for 13 years. Yeah. Uh, it just a lot of people just assume that everyone would rush. Even the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve even made this mistake, saying in one of their uh, speeches, "Well, we're not sure why people don't list their homes." Well. 3% to 8%, it's not a functioning marketplace. That's not, I mean, mortgage rates range from three and a quarter to 5% for 10 years, right? And all of a sudden we go from three to seven, seven to five, five to eight. No, nobody's going to do anything. And, and that's that really showed itself on the inventory data today. And even right now, uh, uh, how we track data, single family active listings today, as of this week, it's 546,000. It's incredible. That's it. That's all the homes that are available for sale. Uh, um, if we want to take the NAR data, I think in regards to the builders, I always say back in 2007, there was 4 million active listings, right? That, that was before the job loss recession happened. People were filing for foreclosures and bankruptcies in 2005, six, seven, eight. Then the job loss recession happened. Today, that NAR data uh, of inventory is 1.1 million. So the builders have a lot less competition. They can offer uh, brand new homes with all the bells and whistles and give you a lower mortgage rate. A very rare, but a huge advantage for them, and they have milked it to perfection. Give them kudos for that. And we still have people, deer in the headlights, look like, 
what is going on here? And then I, I just think you have to like religiously follow housing and know the differences in the last 10 years versus let's say the run up to 2008. So I want to ask you about the realtors and the brokerages and uh, specifically Zillow, which over the last two weeks has had a really nice bounce off the lows. Uh, it's actually had a decent year. Most people don't know that because they're so accustomed to that being a catastrophic uh, stock that they've stopped talking about it. But even like when I look at uh, Open Door, Redfin, Zillow, Compass. So he here's how those stocks did in 2022 versus in 2023. Last year, Redfin was down 88.96%. Redfin is, well, how would you describe it? A di the digital brokerage? Digital uh, brokerage, one-stop so shop. Effectively kind of. down 90%. You know what it did this year, year to date? Yeah. Plus 90%. Quite a ride. It's 90%. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a ride. Zillow last year, negative 50%. This year, plus 41. Quite a ride. Uh, open door last year fell 92%. Almost went to zero. Uh, this year, it's up 209%. And then Compass, negative uh, 74 the last year, plus 18 this year. Okay. So we're off the low. <laughs> we're off the lows. What is going to happen with this industry? I, I hear there's serious problems related to commission fixing, or maybe those fears are overblown, but there was a lawsuit recently. Like how, how, do you, how are you telling people things are going? I, I think number one, we're going to have to wait for the rulings. I think it's going to come out in April. Like how much it's going to cost the NAR to settle. Cause a few, a few of the uh, uh, brokerages actually settled before the lawsuit. So they're kind of like not in the camp where the NAR is. But I think the the real question going out is, what does this do for buyers? Well, wait, let's let's bring people up to speed with what happened because most people aren't following this as closely as you are. So, in simple terms, what what happened? It, the NAR got sued for you know they were National Association they were accusing of them of collusion. Right. Yeah, National Association of Realtors were accused for of collusion. Basically, uh, the buyers were being you know uh, disproportionately affected by their by what they had to pay. Which the crazy thing is, is the seller that actually has to pay that. So now the, the, the commission NAR, to realtors, it's like the commission like yeah. price so and now everyone gets the same set yeah. price. Okay. So now the seller cannot, you know, the seller uh, is not obligated to pay the buyer's agent anymore. This is, this is where this is going. This means that the buyer now has to pay an agent and it's not going to get their, what they pay an agent done by the seller anymore. So this means that the whole dynamic changes. This has actually been in place for, for some time, but now if they make it a national rule, that means anybody looking to buy a house that uses an agent has to pay that agent upfront, or it has to be part of the, maybe a loan, part of the loan transaction they get. They could, they could put it into the cost. Okay. That changes everything in that regards. But the question is, I mean, what happens to those buyer agents? How are they going to charge? Does Zillow and Redfin come in and say, hey, we'll offer a $500 fee or something like that? So there's all these questions about what's going to look like. But I think it's it's positive for the seller, and it could be negative for the buyer in a sense that they have to now bring the money or it's going to have to be put into their, their loan why is it positive for so Why is it positive for the seller? Let's say I sell you a house for a million dollars. I have a realtor. You, you have a realtor. You don't have to pay the. You don't have to pay the real estate agent's commission anymore. I don't have to, but I probably will. You don't in have most you, markets. You could. 
you could you could offer and uh, uh, again a, any seller has a choice to do anything all the time it's their it's their choice uh, you, you don't have to do anything an agent tells you but now you don't have to give the buyer's agent two percent commission or three percent or anything but like I pay that. my you own realtor make, still but you still pay your own realtor that lists the house but now you you're not you're not you're not part of the I mean this could this was always the case anyway yeah. there was no rule about it it's just that you know, sellers just thought, okay, well, we'll offer one or two or three percent commissions to get buyers to come in, and the agents work together to get something done. Here, you don't have to do that. So the seller, in a sense, is already going to keep more of its house. Also, I I, I want to add, this could actually help the builders too, because Ooh. the builders might not be obligated to pay the buyer's agent anymore, right? So that's more money in their pockets that could that could boost their profit margins going out in the future. Because they don't always one, one or two percent is ten or twenty thousand dollars of a of a million dollar house. Yeah, I mean, it's some of these homes, some of these homes, yeah, it, it's 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 real yeah. money. So uh, now the question is, what about the buyers okay. now? Like, how are how are they going to like? Uh, are they going to offer? They say, listen, we're only going to pay you two thousand dollars. So there's all this confusion about how the buyers agents and buyers are, are going to get paid or how they're going to do that transaction. That is something we have to wait until all the lawsuits right. and everything gets settled out and you get some clear. But uh, it definitely, it, it puts the National Association of Realtors at a financial risk in terms of what how much they're going to have to pay. And also, there's going to be more, probably more clarity on how buyers, agents gets paid going out in the future. And then the seller gets to keep more of the money. And then the buyer is going to have to figure out a way to get part of the process and pay their uh, agent as part of the negotiation between the in seller and the In a weird way, does now. this benefit a Zillow because the rules are now so unclear? It can. That, that Zillow can, it, it has it can. an opportunity to clear things up for people. Transparency. When I was first interviewed about on this, just on the stock side, I said, uh, maybe they can just say, hey, listen, come to us. It's a five hundred dollar fee. We'll 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 do yeah. this. And I I mean it, it's it it's all speculation at this point, but uh, whenever something like this happens, somebody comes in and tries to take the market share, yeah. right? So uh, uh, I think that's by by spring of next year when we get the court rulings on you know what's it going to cost uh, the National Association of Realtors or do they settle out? I mean they could settle this out before it even gets to get gets to the final number. Then we could see how that plays out. But I, I'm really curious on what the buyers are going to do and how they're going to pay for the transaction now because they it was never something they just the seller always paid for it so they were okay they were just going into the transaction and maybe realtors on individually just decide I don't want to represent buyers anymore if it's unclear what my effort is going to is going to be worth it could but you need somebody to negotiate the price I don't I don't think consumers are 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 you know versed enough to do you know that they can write contracts everything so somebody has to represent the buyer in that maybe the listing agent becomes a dual dual agent all the time or some something to that nature but it's just unclear what the final rules are so until that happens there's going to be a lot of Can a real estate broker say I don't care what the industry does if you want my help and you do because I'm the best I need $1000 up front and I need 1% of whatever we end up on like can can you do Any real estate agent could say that and then the, the the seller can say, "Listen, I want. I, I mean, I I think this is going to be. Some sellers are just going to go. Okay, we'll just we just offer one percent. Yeah, 
for any buyer out okay. there, any buyer agent out there. So they can they can do that, and then that's that's the seller's own. I don't choice. think that would stop any transaction. Might, do you? I think it's overblown in the sense that people think all hell is going to break loose and nothing's going to get done. Uh, I I just think the the case became very confusing in the terms that people thought there was like massive collusion. Like the sellers and the buyer agents were working together to keep, you know, no, it doesn't doesn't necessarily work that way. The seller is always in control. I want that. you to clear. Uh, I want you to clear one more of these things up for us. You did a really good piece at uh, Financial Truth talking about uh, some of the misinformation going on with hedge funds and and private equity buying up all the houses in America. So you wrote this. Quote, are big Wall Street investors really buying 44% of homes this year? The answer is no, not even close. Housing inventory is near all-time lows, but big institutional investors like Invitation Homes or BlackRock aren't to blame. The 44% claim was made in the headline for a Medium article last week, spread like wildfire all over social media. Of course it did. Congress has even jumped on the bandwagon with Democratic lawmakers, of course they are, introducing bills looking to limit or ban hedge funds from buying single-family homes. You can understand why this story would have legs on social media. It's got everything. It's got anti-Wall Street. It's got class warfare. It, it's got people being wronged. Everyone is in the housing market, so everyone's involved. You could totally see why this would, would catch on, right? I've been dealing with this topic for seven, eight years now. And I, the first thing I say, class warfare works. In this day and age where some guy can make a TikTok video and basically say 44% of all the homes in 2023 <laughs> were bought by- 44%. 44%. And it just spread like wildfire. And of course, a lot of people on, on Twitter and social media, they say, hey, can, you, can you give us the stats? So I've always tried to put the charts up there to give some uh, uh, reality check. But even if in the previous well, decade- Where did that number come from? Was it just pulled out of thin air or- oh, it was, I, I, the, the, the number was 0.4% <laughs> in Q2. 0.4% to 44%. I mean, see, this is, this is why I say this gets the bat crazy award of the year because uh, it was like 44% in this year, not even the last few years combined. This year, 44, which is like over 2 million homes. They don't it's even have one, it's half. It's like what, one out of two homes was bought by a hedge fund. I believe that. You know, so of course, uh, you know, to give everybody some raw numbers, from 2011 to 2017, if I take all the pension funds and Wall Street firms put together, they bought 200,000. Okay, homes. not zero. During that period of time. Not zero. Yeah, not zero. But during that period of time, there's over 36 million homes right. bought. Okay. So it's, it's always a very tiny percentage, but in certain markets, there are more, uh, of course, but- you put BlackRock and Blackstone in any headline and they're going to buy all the homes and nobody's going to own anything. And, you know, I think BlackRock owns maybe 0.02%. Well, they're done, right? Because they don't, they don't like this. This press is terrible. It's not worth it. They don't make enough money. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're, we're not even talking big buyers this year. I mean, it's actually fallen off in I think they don't want to be in this business anymore. Do you? Well, no, none of it, nobody's really selling, but the, it's just such a tiny, it's the tiniest percentage of buyers. I mean, maybe foreign, foreign buyers is, is about roughly 200,000 a year or two. So it's just, it's class warfare in its greatest form. Think about it. You can, you can say this and then it'll spread like wildfire. And then you have a congressional bill coming on, which here's the thing. 
These institutions are buying and renting them out. It's not like they're buying them and hoarding them and not doing anything. There are actually families living in these homes, especially the single family homes. So now, assuming the it passes, which I don't think, 10 years, you got to kick these people out of the homes, right? So we're pitting renters versus owners. That's why I would say that that one of the reasons you don't see lawmakers offer, let's say, let's give tax cuts to all investors to sell, right? N- nobody gets to pay any capital gains, put it on the market. You have to boot people out of those homes and no politician really likes that, right? There's going to be videos of, oh, I got to leave my house because some politician thought it was, you're pitting homeowners versus renters. So th- they are providing a service in the sense that they are giving that shelter for renters where a homeowner can't buy that house anymore, but for a renter, they can. So uh, it's completely blown out of proportion. But think about it. In this society, you can lie every single day and get rewarded for it. And even if you get fact-checked, it doesn't matter. So I sort of understand. I know the numbers are fake, and it's not an actual threat. But I do understand the animus and like what makes it spread like wildfire. Um, you have a lot of people in this country that are constantly thinking about the accumulation of assets by corporations and concerned that they're going to be locked out of the ability to own anything and forced to rent because of affordability. I, I'm not saying that is happening. I'm saying it is a legitimate thing to be worried about. You also have some uniquely American ideas about property ownership and, you know, relative to socialist countries, uh, Germ- Germany's home ownership rate is like 39% or, or, or excuse me, 49%. So less than half of, of Germans own a home. Here in the United States, what are we, 65, 62? Yeah, six, uh, 66 right now. 66. I think home ownership is part of like the American dream and it's tied up in, you know, how people uh, feel about, you know, their how people express themselves, they own their property. So I get like why it's so polarizing, even if the data is fake and the hysteria is 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 overblown. It is. I, I, I always say that if you really want to blame someone, blame those avocado toasting, pesky, pesky little kids that bought majority of the homes for the last five years, you know? Yeah. So uh, the, the problem is that housing inflation got savagely unhealthy here in this country. And yes. this this has been in the works for like 10 years. Total active inventory has been falling slowly for years and years. And here comes the biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. And we simply had too many people chasing too few homes. Which you have been talking about for years. And nobody's going to, everyone's just going to assume that prices have to crash or these people are going to have to sell their homes to do what? There, I mean, they, you, the, the financial profiles of American homeowners are at the best levels ever recorded in history. We have other countries right now, like Canada's offering like 90-year mortgages because their short-term rates are adjusting and their payments are going up so much. And here in America, we have the 30-year fix. So homeowners are doing exceptionally well, much better than renters. And now there's there are people who wanted to buy a house in 2020, 2021, and 2022, and they just got outbid because- I think 75.8% of the homes were being had multiple bids in the early part of 2022. But that time where we talked about we only had 240,000 single family homes. So we all paid the price as a country for not having enough product available. Right. 
And we think it's, oh, it's the Fed. Well, the Fed kept rates too low. And once rates go to four, five, six, seven percent, home prices will crash and everything. No, it didn't, right? Different dynamics here. But here, I've always tried to explain that too many people chasing too few homes. And when inflation gets out of hand, oh boy, politicians could come in and blame people. If you were talking to um, the Biden administration or Congress or like what, I don't know how you get the home builders to build an extra million homes, but that's like kind of what it would take and it's not going to happen. So what else, what else can you do? I actually wrote about this in 2021 that, you know, when rates go up, the builders will, you know, they're not going to overbuild anything. The, the government would actually have to step in on a unbelievable year round basis and make sure production is being being built. Now, we had an apartment boom happening where we were producing a lot of uh, five unit properties. Now, where rates went up so much so fast, guess what? Construction loans are too high. So a lot of people are killing those projects. If you wanted a, a some kind of policy is that the government would have to step in and, and help the production of apartments or, uh, or duplexes or single family homes. So you don't lose any grounds every time. Republicans aren't going to, they're not going to love that. That's a thing. Politics itself, politics, many blood sucking parasites. It's never going to work yeah. because two parties, but you, you'd have to always be consistently building. Like the best way to deal with inflation is always supply. So the growth rate of rents are falling, right? And, you know, there's more supply coming on the market. Housing is one of these things where so many people own homes and they're doing really well. And it's the transaction models are, are, are different now after the qualified mortgage. So the only way you could do is build, build, build. And the builders just, just do not build that many homes efficiently or fast enough. So you'd have, to, it's this long process of constantly building. And whenever rates go up, they slow things down. Uh, and here, you know, after the great financial recession, the building was very slow. You have to remember construction productivity is terrible in America. Like we still built homes with hammers and nails and like we did in the fifties. <laughs> so it's not like we produce these things very fast. So it just takes time. And we just got caught in a very, very once in a lifetime event where we had too many people chasing too few homes. Price prices got out of control and people are just sitting here. They're waiting. Well, why aren't home prices crashing? Why isn't there more inventory? When you buy that house, you're in, and that 30-year fixed product, the homeowners are not only shielded against inflation, but they're shielded against the Federal Reserve too. So it's just not fair. There's so much frustration out there. And who, oh, Wall Street, they bought, yeah. you know, easy, easy this target. amount of homes. So it, it's very easily, you could target them and do bills and everything. So it's not coincidence that all of a sudden that bill came up and then spreading like wildfire, 44% of all the homes bought in 2023 were from Wall Street. So uh, it, it, it's America today. Let, last one for you. What do you think of this idea? Obviously, one of, the, one of the things that seems most unfair, and every generation has its version of this, but now you've got millennials who are um, late 20s to late 30s, that, that slice, they should have the ability to buy a home for reasons not anyone's fault in particular. They're just, the boomers are living longer. They're not selling. Why would they sell into this market? Nobody could afford to borrow to buy their house from them and they have to buy something else anyway. So that's an issue. Um, what if you did a special mortgage, federally backed, just for the first time buyer who's trying to just get their life started, start a family, start a household, 
What if you did like a 3% mortgage for that buyer? Would that unlock some of the freeze in the housing market? Who would be hurt by it? I can't imagine anyone. Like what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on some sort of proposal like that? Here's the one issue with something like that. When we, when we talk about majority of sellers or buyers, there is one group of people that do not provide any inventory. It's the first time home buyer. They just buy what's available out there. So a, a counter to something like that would be that that's a demand side product that will facilitate home prices to keep on growing faster than they should. Why? Because there's more buyers in the, in the, in the available pool? And, and, and yeah, more buyers in the available pool. Like the, the way I talk about this, because I've, I've had this question before, there's a reason why active inventory has been falling for many years. And guess who's been buying for many, many years? The first time home buyer, millennials have been buying since 2013. If we provide a product just for them, then it really, the supply and demand uh, imbalances could stay low for longer and prices can still get out of control. I mean, to me, it's that the Fed is overhiked rates got out of control. They would need, you know, when rates come back down, you could get more first-time home buyers. But a product like that, the counter to that is that that would keep inventory abnormally lower than it should be. Now, what if I said, I understand that being the negative. The positive is we don't have an army of 28-year-olds who want to overthrow the government and uh, stop believing in capitalism and uh, stop marching in the streets for Marxist causes. Like, what if I say, the, the good outweighs the bad and we should just do it to shut these people up. I don't know. I think I got you. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand the frustration because a lot, not a lot of people know this over 90% of uh, first time home buyers um, finance their mortgage. And when you take it ages 58 and on uh, it's less than 50%. It's so the boomers are, cash. are killing it again. Yeah. yeah. They're killing it again. Cause those pesky kids, they're not being bidding against them anymore. Yeah. So I totally get the frustration. That's my whole thing. You know, we're not we're not complicated people. We rent, we date, we get married. Three and a half years after marriage, we have kids. We typically buy single family homes. Uh, this is why I say it's a savagely unhealthy home market. So here it is, this big, huge demographic patch. And even if there's a home out there available, they've got you know ten other people going against them. I think for for something like that, I think that. The product might have to be that you only sell a home to a first-time home buyer, oh, and you get the benefit for that seller. That's interesting. So the seller, the seller gets the benefit of a low mortgage rate if they sell to a first-time home buyer, right? Because you, there, there's two pieces to the equation, right? The seller has to sell you that house and then buy another house, so they have to be they have to have the ability to to profit as well. That's why if so you, you offer all, a three percent, you see have all these boomers like hanging out outside Chip, uh, a Chipotle, like, "Hey, want to buy a house?" <laughs> Psst. All right, I got it. Hey, man, I want to tell people how they can listen to uh, how how people could listen to your show. What's what's your podcast called? Housing Wire Daily, uh, top ten Apple business podcasts. Uh, if you, if you go there, we we're twice a week, Thursdays and Mondays. There's a YouTube page now. You just go to Housing Wire. You could uh, see that Sarah Wheeler and my we try to give up all the live freshest uh, housing data and economic data because things are crazy. Nothing moves slow anymore, and ch try to keep people uh, uh, as informed as possible. If you want to nerd out twenty four seven, Logan Motoshami, my Instagram page. I do my stories are all just about economic data. Uh, out there. So our, our job is just to try to connect the dots and take the confusion out of housing because trust me, 
it's crazy out there. Nothing makes sense. So you got to guide people. Be the detective, not the troll, as I always say. Uh, so that's our job. And we, we have a lot of fun doing it. Logan, I think, you're, I think you're the best at that in the world. We appreciate you so much. Thanks for all the, the insight over the years. And, and uh, we'll be checking in with you throughout 2024, I hope. So thanks for coming on today. We appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you so much. All right. Take it easy. Tuesday. We made it. Very happy Tuesday. Weeks are, weeks are flying fast. Hey, did you see this? Uh, John, give me that thing from the New York Post. You see Jeff Bezos just bought two houses worth $147 million. He's going he's to knock them both down. Dude, you used to be able to buy a house like that for $90 million. Things have gotten you, so expensive. Right. Wait, put that back up. I don't even know what's going on here. This is one of two houses in a place called Indian Creek. Island, dude. In the 1950s, like, you could you could buy a house like that on one and a half salaries. It's unbelievable. So, chart off. He's the third hey, richest man in the world. And listen to me. I'm so ahead of my time. He's you are buying not. In, he's moving to Miami. He's moving to Miami. Well, what you act like it? you you act like you live in Miami or something. I almost I almost do. They put the they put the swimming pool in. They took. They took 400 foot long steel walls of a swimming pool. They put them on a crane and they dropped them onto the seventh floor rooftop. And I was so excited I couldn't sleep. The audience doesn't know the hell out of here. The audience doesn't know what you're talking about. I'm moving to Florida. Not tomorrow, not next year, but someday and forever. All right. Hey, you know, you know uh, what time of the year it is? It's like what? people are like stopping working already. It feels is it getting earlier and earlier Not every me. year? That's all I do. Yeah, no, I do that. I do that thing though, where people are email me and I'm like, oh, I, I'm not adding anything to my calendar until January. But well, I mean course. it. I'm not lying. Yeah. I'm really not. I'm not doing new shit. If if we didn't book this shit, it's not happening. It's enough. All right. Uh, shout out to all my gangsters and gangsterettes. Little quick roll call. Dave Wilson's here. John Carlo, Cliff, Roger. Mitch, Dr. Horton, thank God you're here. Saad Malik, Derek, Wilson, Dan McIntyre, Sean's here. Everyone's here. Really excited to see you all. Thank you guys so much for coming. We have a sponsor for tonight's show. Michael, tell us who the sponsor is. It's Y Charts. You know, Ben and I did Ben and I did a webinar with Rushi and the team at Y Charts, and he was dropping like all sorts of zingers and takes. And I was, I was like, yo, save it for the show, save it for Animal Spirits. But he was really giving it to him. So okay. we went over. <laughs> Some of the biggest teams in 2023. I think they've got, not I think, they've got a deck out, like the 2023 most important charts of 2023. Don't pay attention to that really uh, chubby looking picture of me in the bottom screen. No, nobody look yeah, at where that. Where'd they get that from? So, Y Charts. Way better than that. Y Charts is uh, a, a critical to my daily workflow. I've got it up all day, every day. And if you are a listener and a new, uh, new subscriber to Y Charts, Tell them we sent you. Boom, twenty percent off. There's a link it's below just that the show easy. for those of you watching on YouTube or listening on podcast. Click the link, and you can get the twenty-three best charts of twenty twenty-three. Okay, shout out to Y Charts. We love you guys. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Um, buy and hold was the 
easiest. I should easy is wrong. Buy and hold in hindsight was the best strategy for 2023. This is a Bloomberg article that's sure to trigger people who don't like being told that their life's work is worthless. Um, but this is this is you know just to look at. Well, no, I mean that's how people feel. You say like this this easier strategy than whatever the hell you're doing did better. It's triggering. People get really pissed off, and I get it. I would too. Okay, um, let's start with the chart, I guess, to explain to people what we're talking about. So Bloomberg did a back test individually of all these different standalone um, technical strategies or factors, I, I guess you would call them more accurately. And most technicians don't live and die by any one of these in particular. So if you got triggered by me saying this, like maybe like ease back for a second and let me explain what what the reporters are doing here. So they looked at all these things and they basically concluded that, look, in 2023, uh, the low of the stock market happened on January 5th. We've been higher every day since the year started and the high is basically right now. So they say, while charting tools are rarely used in isolation, their lousy performance highlights the pain for anyone who heeded selling signals, whether driven by technical or fundamental factors. Amid the Fed's most aggressive tightening cycle in decades, three quarters of profit contraction and a collapse in multiple regional banks, those who bailed from the market have missed a $7 trillion stock rally. Michael, what are your thoughts? I have lots of thoughts. First thought is, yes, risk management looks dumb in a bull market with the benefit of hindsight. And when I say risk management, anytime you lightened up on stocks, and the market goes higher, you look foolish in hindsight. Number two, these signals, unlike a buy and hold strategy, cannot be quantified. Put that chart back on. Show me the textbook where it says what MACD buy and sell signals are. Show me where it says this is how you use RSI. The thing about technical analysis is that it's an art, not a science. You can't quantify these. Everybody uses it differently. And so I think that this is a load of bullshit. Now, do I think that a lot of technical analysis is absolutely a load of bullshit? Yes, I do. Um, but I think this article is dumb. They're saying going by charting indicators, the market has run too far. Too f- so they're like, they give you this whole like uh, preamble about how these technical uh, factors weren't helpful this year. And then they tell you the S&P 500's 14-day relative strength index or RSI triggered a sell signal in November, the same month when an alarm was flagged by Bollinger Bands. This week, the moving average convergence divergence indicator, better known as MACD, also flashed red. <laughs> so Listen, I don't know. This I, shit doesn't work, but you should be concerned. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't work, but but sell everything. I don't know any any technicians that use a single indicator. Right, they they build a composite of signals, and it's the weight of the evidence approach. It's not one thing. So yeah, this is just this is utter nonsense. Uh, now I go ahead. Bloomberg tracks technical indicators, and its back testing model goes long the S and P five hundred when an indicator signals a buy and holds until a sell is generated. At that time, the index is sold, a short position is established, and kept until a buy is triggered. As things stand now. Seven of the 22 based uh, chart-based trading models are losing money this year. All have done worse than simple buy and hold. So they're just saying that they have these rules-based 
strategies in their database. They have written actual rules. Like moving average uh, is obvious. They're probably going long when you're above and short when you're below. But to your point, I don't know any technicians who have like a doctrinaire approach where they just like put in a model and 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 then go, go skiing. Like most technicians are using these indicators to just give them um, color on which direction things are going. They're not saying like, oh, here, just put this tool in place. You don't have to think at all. I don't like, I don't know anyone that does that. I don't, I don't always follow this advice that I'm about to say, but I think the best way for non-market professionals, people who aren't at their screens all day, the best way for them to use technical analysis is just to avoid stocks that are going down. Just avoid stocks oh, on, in, that are in individual holdings. Yeah. Yeah. Individual holdings. Not for, I'm not talking about the indexes. So yeah, listen, this was a, a, a tough year for risk managers because anytime look at like the market was about to break down, it it shoved it in your face. And so that's the nature. Yeah. I mean, how, how did these indicators do in 2022? I'm sure they did much better. Well, when the market they definitely did, did fall. They definitely, some of them definitely did better than buy and hold. We know definitively. But again, just because that happened, that doesn't mean that they're the right strategy for the next year. And now we know for a fact that they weren't. So I think, uh, look, t- technical analysis, I think there's too much of an onus on technical analysis versus other disciplines. Other disciplines, like a fundamental analyst does all this research, looks at the balance sheet, the income statement, meets with management, does channel checks, looks at the product, blah, 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 blah. And then the stock declines for 90 days. It just happens to be a tough quarter for the company, for the sector, for the overall market, whatever. Nobody says, oh, that doesn't work. Like right. like getting to know a company. Well, because it's, it's, te- it's serious business because they're reading the balance sheet. Thank you for well, your you service. Learn in, you learn it in business school. Thank so you for your service. Everything that you've just done is baked into the price of the stock. Thank you. Right. So 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 by the same, but but the other side of the coin is if you're doing this technically and a signal triggers and it shouldn't have, or you're you're led astray by something technical, oh that shit doesn't work. Okay. Nothing so, works all the time. Yeah. Nothing works all we the know. time. Are you are, we know. are you a child? Yeah, we right. know. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't oh it doesn't work 100% of the time. It's garbage. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is this is but I did want to post this uh this funny chart cuz I love it. Um, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Just leave this up for Lumbar a second. Lumbar support. So, the <laughs> these are not actual technical terms, but um doldrums is funny. Uh Declination, uptalk. There's a bathtub pattern in there. Uh, they have red and green candles, which they say equals Christmas. Uh, no, this uh, is funny. It's funny, but listen. Here's here's good. here's um, here's one of what I want to say about technical analysis: working or not working. To your point, nothing works all the time. Beating the market is extraordinarily difficult. Whatever discipline you're using, if t- if there was no validity to technical analysis, if the market was just purely a random walk, which by the way, most people listening should assume that the market is a random walk. And when I say most people, myself included, you should assume that the market follows a random walk, but it doesn't because if it did, then Renaissance Technologies would not have extracted however many billions of dollars worth of profits that they've done from the market over the years just by, yeah, exactly. You just by following- the alpha. Not, and I'm not saying just by following, but they had, a, they had an early uh, discovery, which was that updates are more likely to be followed by updates. Uh, and down days by down days and vice versa. And now obviously it's much more sophisticated than that, 
But there is some validity to technical analysis. As much as we like to poke fun and, and charts like that, it's not all voodoo nonsense. It's just not. A lot well, of it is, but it's not all. You know, it's it's based on the actual buying and selling of other people, which doesn't mean every time a pattern appears, it's going to mean something for the future. And it certainly doesn't guarantee you anything just because you're observing the same trend that someone else is. It, it, it's a tool, and the person utilizing the tool could be really good, really bad, or somewhere in between. Yeah. And I think I think that's any tool, any any prism through which you want to view the markets is going to have uh, practitioners who are better than others uh, at, at right. utilizing it. Right. I think that's, right. I think that's really a, 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 we don't have to say more about it. Do yeah. we? Okay. Nope. We said it all. All right. Uh, why is everyone in the chat asking us questions about Tommy DeVito and what's this, mm. what's his story? His, I know he does the thing with the, he does the Italian thing with the hand. That's great. Um, what his agent's name is cutlets. What, what's going on? Vincenzo what, Cutlets. Me, no, I don't know what his agent's name is. Johnny Cutlets or something? It's like Linsanity all over again. I don't know why I said Linsanity. Linsanity. We've got we've got the the Saints next week. They've got like the twenty seventh ranked pass defense. So maybe the magic continues for another week, but it will he'll come back to earth. It reminds me of like Gardner Minshew or there's been a few of these. Who was uh, who's the Irish guy who was on the Jets? I oh no, uh, Fitzmagic was actually good. Fitzmagic. Um, he, no, I mean it's fun to watch. I hope yeah, it no, continues. Listen, I'll take it. Uh, I would rather be losing games, but so it goes. Okay. Uh, from Daily Chart Book, this, uh, this chart comes from Crescat Capital. The S&P 500 tech companies, including mm. Amazon and Alphabet, collectively allocate a higher annual capital expenditure, expenditure excuse me, than the combined spending of the energy and material sector combined. Unbelievable. I wonder what the CapEx is beyond equipment, like beyond like servers and stuff. It's like people, right? Can that be classified people is not, CapEx? People, people, no, people is not CapEx. Let's see. Then, like not in any way? No. So nope. it's like facilities and servers and cloud stuff. And like they're not, I guess they, I guess they have to, I guess the build out of the cloud is a lot of where this CapEx is going and then semis and semi equipment. So I'm on, I'm on Y charts. They show, show it right here. CapEx for the last 12 months. Oh my God. Amazon, throw out a number. Just what's the last 12 months? I don't know. 50 billion? Yeah, good guess. $54 billion. Yeah. $54 billion. Unbelievable. Yeah. Alphabet. Uh, 30 billion, uh, 29 billion, just an incredible amount of money that these companies are spending. Um, and, and their spending has actually been chastened. Like they were spending way more. And then they all had like activists and, and shareholders yelling at them on Twitter. And they, they've kind of like been tamping down on all the spending. Amazon said last year, it was never going to spend like that again. Uh, the way, the way it did during the pandemic. So like they, they this is like a, a, I mean, you could see that in the chart. Uh, chart back on. This is what? What is? What is the? What is the y-axis here? Uh, that is annual cap. Annual capex. Listen, I, sh I should have just I sh publicly traded tech. I should have included these charts in the doc. Um, Amazon spending is well off its highs. Meta yeah. is well off its highs. Apple's right. remarkably been pretty flat for like the last ten years. Um, Google's a little bit off its highs, but anyway. We spend rightfully so a lot of time talking about these companies, and it's hard not to. They, they're everywhere. 
right? They dominate, like the idea that Amazon, not that they dominate, but they're having a huge impact on movies, the entertainment industry, TV. Um, yeah. Soon it's going to be sports. Was making that piece of shit Lord of the Rings show, uh, CapEx. How does that get, <laughs> is that r and Easy, we, we already did that. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be live sports soon. Uh, Netflix just announced this uh, Nadal versus Alcaraz. Uh, so they're going, they're going in that direction too. And of course- uh, of course, this is not to mention anything they're going to be doing in AI, right? They're, they're not asleep at the wheel there. Google is going to be dominating AI along with the other giants and payments like payments. They're just, they're yeah. dominating everything. So Mark Rubenstein had a fantastic post over the weekend about the push button, PayPal, shop pay, Apple like inside the, like inside the online, um, register where you're like. Like inside the screen where you're paying all those buttons now. Yeah. So now there's five buttons. I just want to read a piece, uh, a snippet from from Mark's post. And Mark's post, Mark's uh, Substack or whatever his blog is called Net Interest, and it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Shout, to, shout out to Mark Rubenstein, by the way. We haven't talked Adop- to him in a minute. He's talking about adoption was initially slow. In 2017, the Wall Street Journal reported that only 13%, they're talking about, they're talking about Apple Pay which launched in 2016 or 17. In 2017, the Wall Street Journal reported that only 13% of the 680 million iPhone users had used Apple Pay. Unlike PayPal, Apple Pay was designed for the offline world and growth was hampered by a requirement to build out the relevant infrastructure. But as that happened, usage picked up. In 2014, when it was introduced, okay, only 3% of retailers in the US had the infrastructure to accept contactless payment. That number is now 90%. Holy shit. And Visa reports that 40% of U.S. transactions are now now contactless. Just like put the card chip on the screen. The phone down, up from 5% in 2020. The proportion of iPhone users currently using Apple Pay has risen to 75%. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. So chart on, please. This is Apple Pay. Wait, there are 1.2 billion iPhones and 75% of iPhone users are paying with, with their phone. So it's look at the lead. Look at the lead that PayPal had on Apple. Yeah. So again, chart off, please. Look at me. We're talking about tech spending, tech spending. So entertainment and media, payments, mm. sports, mm. AI, like security. What, I mean, there there is no. They're prestige worldwide. Every one of these companies, it's crazy. They there do is everything. no. There is no precedent in the historical data. I know that yeah. there's always been innovation. I know that. I'm not naive. But there's never been this no, sort of I, these sort what? of companies. And I, I think people in, I, people discount that. Oh, the top 10 companies, do you not know history? The top there's always disruption. And yes, it's true. And I'm not gonna like bet my life that this trend will continue forever, that Amazon will never be disrupted. But is it possible that this time is different? Are you not at least open-minded to that? Okay. So I had this debate. I think I was on TV. Just, just explaining like these. Com- what's different about these companies versus prior companies uh, that dominated the indices is that they don't respect the walls between I- industries. They don't get. They don't give a shit. Amazon is is happy to sell pharmaceuticals. Try to stop them. Try to stop whatever you think you can do to stop them. It won't work. And they will be the pharmacist. And they don't care that they also do groceries and they also and shipping. Um, own, the, own the rights to Thursday night football. Shipping. And they also own all of the logistics for themselves and for third-party e-commerce companies. The, it, the argument, oh, they own Whole Foods. The arguments 
of like, oh, uh, anytime a company gets this big in its industry, they're in every industry. Yeah. Now, somebody st stuck that up my ass and said, okay, well, consider late 90s General Electric making jet engines and paying Jennifer Aniston to be on Friends. And they had a bank. And they had, all right, uh, they had energy. They had, they were making MRI machines. Okay, that's fair. There have been other conglomerates that have gotten way outside their lanes. Um, I just feel like this is different. I, I, I feel strongly that this is very different. So uh, I'm not, I'm not saying go all in on Mag 7. Yes, um, you are. Just own it. That's but your if there was a triple lever Mag 7 ETF, I would be all in. Uh, okay. Um, now I'm only teasing, obviously. What else? Uh, can I, can uh, I, can I, can I, can I talk a little bit more shit on this? The more interesting conversation is who's going to be in the Magnificent 10. I, so had dinner, not to brag, had dinner with, uh, Francesca last night and, uh, Joe Terranova. And we're talking about that next layer of tech stocks. They're not in the mag seven, but they have a, a platform and a dominance that conceivably you could picture them eventually getting into that realm. There's not a lot of them. Salesforce is on that list. It's already a Dow component. Uh, it's it's kind of well on its way. I don't know of like the next three Salesforces. It's like if you're a, if you're a large scale organization dealing with customers, you probably work with Salesforce. So there's like a few of those. I have Uber on on my list. Uber's a hundred thirty billion dollar market cap. It could I think it could ten x. Um, in, in 10 years, not the market cap, the stock price, because they could buy in a lot of shares. Um, but they have that same dominance to me, mobility. So like we talk about like Amazon, not only their own e-commerce, but now they're fulfilling everyone else's Uber is the mobility. Like if you want to move people or freight, or you want to deliver alcohol, or you want to, uh, deliver fast food or groceries, anything that has to move, Uber has the platform and they have, I don't know, between 50 and 80% market share, depending on the business they're in. So, like, I'm trying to think of what is the next MAG 8, MAG 9, MAG 10, not trying to think of which of the MAG 7 is going to get knocked off its perch. I don't think that's the profitable game to be playing right now. I don't know uh, if this is not in it. And I don't even think, is Netflix in the MAG 7? No, it's te it's te no, it's Tesla, Microsoft, and, and Nvidia, Al Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Nvidia. Who's and seven? Google. Did we say Google? No, Facebook? we did Alphabet, Meta. Say, yeah. So seven. Netflix, Netflix is is got to be there. Fine. No, it's a candidate. It's not there. Market cap. It's not there. It's a candidate. It's a candidate. I don't know what. Else. I mean, if listen, if if net if Netflix ends up buying half the NBA season and they start doing things physically. They start building theme parks. Who who could count them out? Wait, where's the line for inclusion? What market cap are you talking about? Are we talking about a trillion dollars? What are you talking about? Uh, I think Tesla is seven hundred fifty billion. Let's call that the line. Okay, is that fair? I mean, the the the, re the rest the rest are a trillion. Do I have that right? Yeah. Are we sure? Yeah. I mean, Nvidia, no, Nvidia is not a trillion. Nvidia it is was. maybe eight hundred. Um... Maybe I'm wrong. I thought it was a trillion. Uh, anyway, this would be interesting. Yeah, what are the next? What are the next three to go? Anyway, on? we could do a whole show on that. Let's yeah. let's let's put a let's put a pin in that. Yeah, no, Nvidia is one point one seven trillion. Okay, next topic. Charlie Munger's uh, conversation with John Collison for uh, the Invest Like the Best so podcast. Good. So good. 
there was like a little bit of an aside where he was talking about the risks to big brands because of the house brands at places like Costco have just changed the way people think about consumer products. So he's talking about like Colgate and Palmolive and um, Procter and Gamble and, you know, like those brands are now at risk because the consumer is happy with Kirkland for, mm. you know, for a lot of categories, not for every category. Um, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about uh, wealth management and brokerage and Merrill Lynch. Like when I started in the business, it was Mother Merrill and the people that worked there were really proud of it. And the people who had started their career there, especially in research, wore that like a badge of honor. And I still know really great people who who are at Merrill Lynch, so I'm not denigrating the company itself, but just the brand finds itself in a really weird spot. When they reported Q3 earnings, I think they were probably the weakest among the wealth management businesses, like compared to uh, Morgan Stanley. Uh, It almost looks like they're standing still. And I don't really know what changes that. This is a piece... uh, I don't know where this was published, but this is uh, Mason Mason Broswell, I know, and Miriam Rosen. They're saying, looking to reinvigorate its veteran broker recruiting efforts, Merrill Lynch is offering top producing advisors and teams market-leading deals worth as much as 400% of their annual revenue to join. Think about that. 400%? To, to move to Merrill Lynch. And as crazy as that number sounds, I don't know one advisor who would take it. What do you think? No, right? No. Do you know any, I'd, can you think of any, we know you and I, between the two of us, we probably know a thousand advisors. Can you think of one who would be like, yeah, that's worth it. I'll take it. Yeah. You, you can? <laughs> yes. You can't think but, of any. But it's not, are they, it's not, are they at Wells Fargo? It's not a lot. It's not a lot. That's a, it's that's a, that's a lot of money. It's a, it's, I mean, it's really a lot of money, but ba- Oh, it's advisor hub is the publication. So basically like everyone else, they're trying to recruit, but what is the story they have to tell? It's not even called Merrill Lynch anymore. They're there. It's bank of America securities and they like killed the Merrill brand. So like, what is the story that they're telling for why you would pick up all your clients and, and walk, walk back into the cage um, they just told you. They just told you. It's 400%. There it is. But then I mean, what? But then what? That's it. So you, sp- all right. So you get the 400%. Your, your wife buys a bigger house with it. Now what? Now you're at Merrill Lynch? Or now, now you're, you're at Bank of America? I, I mean, it's, it just seems like, uh, it, it's, it seems like a really, really tough situation. I don't know how they can change the perception, but I talk to Merrill advisors. I mean, honestly, uh, there's people complain about every firm, like UBS, blah blah blah. But like, I've never talked to a Merrill advisor who's like, "This is awesome. I want to stay here forever." I don't know. Have you? Legacy brands like once tarnished are really. Are there any turnaround stories of hundred-year-old brands losing the magic and then getting it back? In what? In our industry? Just in general. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there are, but. Apple. It's fine. Do you need another one? In yeah. our industry, uh, I can't think of any. I could think of brands that that have stumbled and then have, and then have like picked themselves back up, but not brands that have really transformed. Not in finance. It's too hard. And 
I honestly think the Merrill brand could be rejuvenated, but they're not doing that. It's Bank of America Securities. And they're like, they're like, um, here, Merrill stopped reporting its broker headcount several years ago, adhering to an industry-wide pattern. They, so they're not focused on headcount. They want quality advisors, which does make sense. You know what uh, has not slowed down at all? We've, we've discussed like rolling recessions and, and real estate, obviously, and, and tech and other areas of the market. Uh, advisor recruiting is still as, as ferociously competitive, competitive more, as, it's, as it's ever been. More than ever. Before before uh tonight's show we got word that one of the advisors that we were talking to who were fans of and you know just the the, the offers that these people are getting are uh they're tough to compete with yeah uh and in most cases not worth it um yeah they have eleven thousand brokers according to the article bank of america has nineteen thousand one hundred and thirty total who has eleven thousand so, there's like 11,000 Merrill brokers that like work in a Merrill branch, according to, uh, according to the article. So, but that includes Merrill brokers, private bankers, and then also consumer bank-based Merrill edge brokers. Merrill, uh, I was saying, how, how do you think Merrill edge is doing? I don't hear about that too much anymore. Anyway. No. All right. Tough. Uh, listen, man, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to make the case for why people should come. If you're the client of somebody who's getting 400% on their trailing one year production. Like, I feel like you should have to disclose that to your client. Um, if you're an advisor and like you're being paid that much, you can't call the client and be like, oh yeah, this is what's good for you. That's why we're moving. Like, I, wonder I, if there's, like you, I wonder if there are strings attached, like fine print, you know, sure like assuming yeah, you, you do. stay until you die. And you do this business with the bank and you sell this and that. All right, speaking of banks, let's talk about them. They're doing the thing. They are doing the thing. And I don't think really anybody is prepared for a world where banks break out, but they're doing it. And I, uh, you know, let's just run through some charts. What do you think? Okay. John, me, if you'd please. Show me what you got. Well, this is uh, my chart that I saw right. from JC. Do you have any? Okay. Do I have any? I have tons of charts. We can All talk right, about JC's do, first. Let's All right, do, do mine. Okay. Yep. So this is the S&P 500 equal weight financials. You see that, and this is a three-year, these are three-year weekly charts that we're going to be looking at. You see that, that March, was that, yeah, you see that March, that big giant red, right? So yeah. that's the flush from the regional banks. And Man, do, you remember, do you remember that week? I kind of do. Sh I sh well, dude, yeah. It was not, not that long ago. It was terrifying. <laughs> Uh, so they have digested all of that and they're on the march higher. All right, next we're going to move to the cap weighted, which looks significantly better. And this looks pretty mean. It looks ready to run. It is running. What, oh my goodness, it is running. This is the XLF uh, weighted by, like traditional weighted by yeah, market cap. Yeah, yeah. So this is basically JP Morgan. Berkshire. Berkshire, yeah. Visa. Great. Uh, speaking what's, of which. What's not to love. Speaking of which, there's Visa, Visa at an all-time high. Not a bank. No, nah, it's a financial. Next, it's next one. It's a, it's a tech stock. Oh, f off. It's a financial. It's literally MasterCard. the XLK. It's I don't actually. care. I don't care. MasterCard. I'll I will f off, but it is not a financial. Keep okay, going. MasterCard Google, either. It, hold on. No, 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 no. Chart off. Got to look at this jackass. Is Google not a tech stock? <laughs> Google is a communication services stock. Is Google not a tech stock? Listen, I'm just telling you what Sam Stovall told the world, and you have to abide by it. 
So the I don't abides. know why it is the way it is. The dude abides. But it Char- is the way it is. Charts back on, please. Okay. Uh, Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Couple of couple of couple of ninety year olds uh, beating the shit out of AI stocks this year. What's not to love? R.I.P. Charlie. And uh, look at this thing, man. Let's keep it moving. And they got success. And they got succession squared away. Progressive. Progressive. I haven't looked at this stock in a million years. Beast. 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 Uh, I think we have one more insurance company in here. Allstate. I mean, does that look mm-hmm. like it's about to? It looks like it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Keep it rolling. Uh, S&P Global. Mm. I like that. What is this? This is, this is S&P Global, like the index provider? Yeah. Yep. I don't see myself buying that. Uh, next chart. Uh, Blackstone, Blackstone. Couple uh, so I'm in the I'm in the worst one. I'm in. Um, I mean this this broke that Car- downtrend. Carlisle Group, which is a piece of shit. Look at this nasty downtrend from the end of uh, end of 2020. Right, broke it. Yeah. Next one, BlackRock's looking a little bit better, struggling against the headwinds from the Federal Reserve, obviously yeah. as everybody else's, uh, but it's looking pretty good. Charles Schwab, mad I nope. sold this one. No, 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 it's fine. It's, it's not. <laughs> This is this is look at this downtrend. This thing is locked in. You would buy that. You would buy this chart. This looks like textbook lower lows coming. Perhaps you, you would buy. You would buy I don't. This? I don't. I don't see lower lows. If this rolls back into the the mid forties, I'm definitely buying it. Next chart. I'll buy it again. Okay. Uh, Capital One. Now this breaking a is, downtrend. Not great. No, I like this a lot. I like this a lot. This is pure consumer exposure and uh, looks pretty good. And I think that's the last one. So anyway, my point is that the banks haven't led in a long time. People forget what it's like to be in a market where banks lead. And uh, maybe we get that in 2024. Banks are not- I'm going to tell you- They're not a small portion of the- I'm going to tell you, the best best charts you showed me were not even in the index, number one. Number two, this happens every year, once a year. They never follow through. They always roll over. Um, Sounds bullish to me. I mean, just just look at individual names- they're they're in the same trading range for 15 years, so and and the best charts you showed me were technically not not financial. So um, I'll show you your 13 percent of the S and P 500. Yeah, not no, nothing. I know, I know. Can you imagine if these stocks were good over the last 10 years? Second biggest second biggest sector in the S and P 500. Let's look at um. Is JC looked at European financials? So whatever bad you could say about U.S. banks, these have been worse over the last 15 years. But this is the last couple of years, and uh, new 52-week highs are not bearish. And they now have positive interest rates in Europe for the first time in a generation. And believe it or not, banks make money when rates are higher, not lower. And I think if you don't have uh, an imminent Russian invasion of Lithuania, these things probably break out. Dude, um, EU, I, I think, no, they are breaking out. EUFN, which is the one that I look at, it's just like the basket. Let's see what this thing is up here to date. But I think that's uh, what I just isn't that what I just showed you? Is that what e, well, I'm just I showed you the, the index that that's based on? Maybe I'm looking at know. the year to date numbers. So HSBC is at a 52 week high, as is UBS. EUFN is up 23% year to date. Hand up, who owns European financials? I, I don't. Banco Santander, which would you even buy? Credit Lyonnais? I'd buy, if I was going to buy them, I'd buy, I'd buy just buy the index. Uh, all right, let's keep it moving. HSBC up 35% year to date. Yeah, these charts well, look good. I I, we should address CPI because yes. one of the main reasons why the banks have been acting so well is yield curve steepening. Um, 
the potential for yield curve steepening, the potential for overnight rates to be cut at some point in 24, while um, intermediate term uh, interest rates remain higher for longer. That would represent a nice opportunity for banks to traditionally make money, to make money the traditional way, um, lending and borrowing at short rates and and lending at long. Um, CPI continues to moderate. Today was as Goldilocks as Goldilocks gets. Uh, I think the headline number was 3.1% in November. I understand that core is 4%, which is still high relative to the Fed's stated target of 2%. But still, directionally, most of the important components are not going up and many are going down. And that's what you kind of want to see. Gasoline uh, fell hard. Uh, what else was in here that jumped out at you? Uh, used cars are have been falling all year, which is a good thing. That's obviously with supply chain related big time, right? Remember okay. the disaster? Uh, clothing listen, prices, clothing prices down in November. New cars down. Yeah, I heard you. Used cars. <laughs> I, I I'm with you. Uh, airlines, airline tickets, alcohol. I think airline was down. 10% year over year, something like that. So now listen, not everything's going down. Like to be Me- sure. Medical care is up. Dude, not everything is going down. So yeah. is it heading in the right direction? Yes. Was today's report in and of itself enough for the Fed to say, mission accomplished? I don't think they so. Never, they never say that. So. I know they're not going to. But like I mean, if, if if you're looking over Powell's shoulder, um, as he's reading the report, and of course he has these numbers ahead of time, but uh, it's it's good. On balance, it's good, but it's not it's not done yet. Chart on. Core inflation. This takes out food and takes out energy. Some economists jokingly refer to it as the inflation report minus inflation. Um, <laughs> but even still, even still, this is what exactly what you would want to see. Um, so you're effectively at three percent on CPI and four percent on core CPI and both are dropping. Well, one and other caveat that you can't you can't talk about inflation coming down without mentioning that it's not because the economy is rolling over. Yeah. Well, that's it's pretty the, remarkable. Well, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, you know, a lot a lot of there was a lot of belief that that was the only way to get inflation to 2% and I mean we're still not there yet, but it, it appears that the Fed has been able to thread the needle or maybe as as uh, David Kelly told us last week, it was going to happen anyway with or without their involvement. Um, inflation doesn't remain at 8% for no reason. So, you know, maybe just enough time passes that it, it happens either way. Yeah, it's I don't probably- know. Yeah, yeah. The Fed thread of the needle is a bit is a bit much, right? Giving, like, them a lot of, giving them a lot of credit, right? They were driving 100 miles an hour. Slammed on the needle, slammed, <laughs> slammed on the brakes, and managed to avoid a crash. Congratulations! Hey, Jay Luther says they fetted the needle. Very good, sir. Well done. Pretty good. Well okay, done. Uh, back to you. It's me. Short yeah. Tesla. Done. Uh, Tony Sakanagi has been bearish Tesla for three years. He had a sixty-dollar price target in the year twenty twenty. Then the stock went to where did it go? 400 he raised his target he raised his target to 150 um remains bearish and 
He's offsides by about 150% so far. He thinks that... Uh, say, Jordan, fundamental, say fundamental analysis is yeah, total doesn't bullshit. Work. It's it fake. doesn't work. Um, he doesn't hate... He's, this is not like, I hate Elon Musk. This, this is none of that. He's not accusing them of fraud. He's just making the very... He's just making the very rational observation that Tesla could have flat earnings growth next year and be forced to do a lot more discounting and auto sales are going to fall and the business just gets harder. It and, sounds like and he's that's all he's that's all he it's it's wait, it's it's I think 90 times earnings with and he and his earnings estimate is flat. That's not a great that's not a great moment to buy a stock historically. It sounds he like he's, he's bearish because Tesla is like a victim of their own success. He says they already own 20% of the luxury market. They already own how much of the EV market? Is it 70%? 60. 60? So yeah. his point is there's saturation there. How much more can they possibly get? Now, but you go through you go through the history of people shorting Tesla. No. It's not great. I was going to say it's better to be an analyst with a sell call on Tesla than it is to be short Tesla with your your own money. John, you have that chart uh, with the short interest, percent of shares outstanding short. So look at this. Great so yard. over the last 10 years, Tesla's up 2,400%. And at certain points over that period, you had a quarter of the the shares outstanding were sold short. It, and so- it, this, tra this trade has literally retired people. Yeah, so I think most of the short sellers have learned their lesson. I don't know. Maybe just like Sakanagi's a, a sell side analyst at Bernstein. He's so now you could say he has reputation risk. You know what? If you don't have money on the line, it's not the same risk. So he's a he's an analyst with a sell call. It's rational. Uh, a lot of the bulls are really excited about full self driving, and they think that Tesla will have it first. And it's very conceivable that they will. The idea that they're going to command ten thousand dollars in auto because they have full self-driving um, for, for a long period of time. That's what, that's what Tony is taking issue with. He's saying like in the automobile industry, you don't, you don't get to keep a technological innovation to yourself and be able to charge that much of a premium for very long. They will all have full self-driving and maybe that'll be worth $2,000 a car, not what if, 10. What if they can't get there in time? Remember that chart that we were looking at showing how much of the market cap these companies are spending? I don't know if it was an R&D or what, but Ford and General Motors, I mean, they, I don't know if they're running out of time. It's hyperbolic, but they're struggling to get into this business. Like it's not, it's not going well for them. And yeah. I, I, like, I, like this, I like this from Saganaki because you don't see this a lot. Whether no. or not he's right or wrong, like it's always either like buy or or hold if you're bearish. Like you don't really get sell reports like this. So credit him for we believe. All right, quote: We believe te that Tesla will disappoint on both units and revenues and earnings per share in 2024. Proud of those we are notably below consensus. He projects 2024 earnings of two dollars fifty nine cents. Stock's two forty four right now, so it's like about 90, about ninety times twenty four estimates according to Sakanagi. Uh, the Wall Street consensus is at three dollars eighty-seven cents. So, Wall Street has Tesla earning like a buck and a quarter more than he does. So, I mean, that's a big. Now, this is the part that I wanted to get your thoughts on. The hole, uh, hole is the wrong word. The gap between the bulls and the bears on this stock is literally epic. How crazy is it? This is ten years of this already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's still that much of a battleground. It hasn't moderated at all. Listen to this. 
Sakanagi, uh, oh, sorry, Tesla stock isn't in the low 100s anymore, which gives us pause about adding positions. Barron's wrote bullishly about it earlier this year, but we wouldn't short it. Um, wait, what did they say? I hope a newspaper wouldn't short a stock. Uh, oh, oh, oh. The top target prices on Wall Street average $350 a share. The low price targets average $100 a share. That $250 bull bear spread is more than 100% of the current price. The bull bear spread for Apple, for comparison, is about 50%. So the spread is bigger than the, the share price? I mean, this is like... I mean, it's the potential outcomes, the path to Tesla's to take, they're, they're wide. They're very wide. Um, do, so he's not getting into like Elon Musk reputation risk, which also has been a widowmaker trade. He, like that's not even the issue. Oh, here's a point that I want to make. He could be right on the fundamental story and the earnings per share and still get the price wrong. Like that, that's happened a million times, right? You could, you could nail the fundamentals and still get the price wrong. Wildly do we have wrong. a picture? Do we have a picture of this Cybertruck thing? We might not. Ugh. A piece of Gross. shit. If you, Gross. I saw a meme. I saw a meme like you pull up to a red light and a group of teenagers starts laughing at you. You have spent $100,000 out of your bank account. You still don't feel any better, like being the driver of one of these. That, sound, that sounds about right. I can picture it being cool for like three days. That's gross. And then it's like, I can't believe this thing is sitting in my driveway. Yeah. The good news is they won't make any money on them anyway, so they almost don't even want to sell them. I think, I think everyone they sell is probably uh, at a loss. All right. So. Let's talk about uh, credit spreads. We spoke about this last week. I said- if I had to just track one indicator, and I don't, but if I did, don't tell me your opinions. Just show me show me credit spreads. And uh, Nicholas and Jessica over at DataTrack tweeted, Triple B U.S. corporate bonds are trading like the probability of a 2024 recession is nearly zero. This market is extremely sensitive to fears of an economic slowdown. So this is reassuring. By the way, I know I know the VIX is like not a not a long-term indicator by any stretch of the imagination, but we got a, we got a 12 handle today. Lowest level since, uh, 12 VIX since January, 2020. Could you explain this chart for people that don't follow, uh, credit spreads? Yeah. Um, so, so this is showing you the difference from which this index of sub investment grade bonds trades at versus treasuries. So it's the yield of triple B corporate bonds, which are high yield junk bonds minus uh, minus the yield on the same maturity, but as a treasury. Yeah, so again- And, the, it's, and it's tiny at this point. It's this, a very, very small spread. This market and this chart, like literally every other market out there is not all knowing or all seeing or always right. But if there was actually legitimate fears of a recession- then these bondholders would demand a greater premium over treasuries, and they're not. Now, that could turn on the blink of an eye, but all is equal. That's what you'd like to say. Um, if those start to blow out, it could be a, it could be a head fake. So it's so like you see this example, chart back on. You see this example of this credit spread in the moment. I guess this is mid-2022. In the moment you could make that you could say uh oh it's blowing out i know we don't like to do percentage of percentage but it did double 
Um, <laughs> I mean, from from the end of 21 to the middle of 22. Uh, but that's not really a blowout. Like a blowout, no, you almost have to know it when you see it. 2020. Yeah, 2020. It, I mean, this this You'll is never this see is, that one again. This is effectively. I mean, it, this tracks very closely with the Vix, right? It's extremely it, tranquil. We, yeah. we could all agree. Yeah. So what are these? Uh, what are these? Uh, oh, I wanted to look at semis really quickly. You're not going to have a recession if this is what the semi stocks are doing. It's really, really tough. Unless this market is so completely ridiculous and bonkers. Um, this, in my view, so we're looking at the Vanek SMH. This is at a, a new record high. And this is with two of the better components not even doing that great. Well, two of the bigger components. NVIDIA, didn't, yeah, and, and NVIDIA hasn't done anything. The Le- entire sector, find a semi stock that doesn't look awesome right now. It's so really, really hard. Lisa Sue, the CEO of AMD, which is a stock that you and I both own, she was Crushing talking the stock. other day about her prior expectations for growth over the next decade. And I think it was like 40% a year for, for some of their chips. And now she's saying it's more like 70%. So yeah. the growth that, we are, that we're seeing, that we're likely to continue to see, uh, is not something that probably happens in a recession. Now, can you, would the AI boom continue if there were a recession? Like would a recession knock this off track or is it, is it in its own little silo? What's crazy is that it was born in a recession. It was a tech, there was a tech sector recession in no 2022. Doubt. No doubt. And, and, and open AI gave birth to chat GPT in this recession. They launched yeah. They launched consumer AI in a, in a tech crash. It's effectively a, a crash for tech. Like it's it's remarkable how how um how that played out. Uh, Sean notes the SMH is up fifty three percent over the last twelve months. Um, let's let's do this last chart. Percentage of semi stocks at fifty two week highs. Thirty two percent of the index um are are at fifty two week highs. Let's look at the percentage of semi stocks with an RSI above 70. These would be overbought. It's about half the index, 48% or so. Um, the whole the whole sector's going crazy. And the reason I bring this up now, I think these are better economic indicator, at least a global economic indicator, than anything we used to look at in the stock market. I transports. think these are more mean more meaningful. These are the new transports because we are we are moving data and information as much, if not more, than we're moving physical goods. So for me, this is an economic indicator that's probably better than a lot of the ones that we used to use, stock market-based economic indicator. So to Josh's credit, you said that semis in the new transports like literally eight years ago at this point or something. It was You said that a long time ago. And semis are going berserk. NVIDIA is by far the biggest holding of SMH, uh, Shata Van Eck, at 18% of the fund. And this and NVIDIA, the stock has done obviously remarkably well over the last 12 months, but it's gone sideways the past couple of weeks. And the second largest holding is Taiwan Semi, which has had a nice run, but that's not at all-time high. So let me read this th- to you. There's a lot of things that are participating. It's not just one or two names. Let me read this to you. This Sean, Sean did this for me uh, today. The SMH is up 65% year-to-date. Through October 31st, it was up 37% year-to-date. Think about that. Um, Say that one more time. <laughs> the SMH was up 37% year-to-date. 
on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Now it's up 65% year to date. Wow. Okay. All right. This is the last decade. 2013, the SMH, the semi-index, uh, semi-index ETF. Ready? 2013 plus 33%. 2014, 30%. Flat 2015, literally zero. 2016 up 36, 2017 up 38, 2018 minus nine, 2019 plus 64%, 2020 plus 56, 2021 plus 42, last year negative 34, this year plus another 64. So, (laughs) I mean, uh, Sean says going back 10 years versus the Magnificent Seven, the SMH has a total return of 736%. Which beats Meta and beats Alphabet. Those are up 434 and 384% respectively. The other five Mag7 names beat the SMH. But still, this is an index beating five of the top seven stocks in the world. Dude, people are, people are afraid to make money. Like People are so afraid to lose money that they're afraid to make money. When you look at those numbers that you just mentioned, you could have said in 2015, I, I can't buy it. I can't buy it now. So I just, I just can't buy it now. You could have said that every single year for the last decade. And yeah. of course, you couldn't know how this is going to turn out, but it is really difficult. So I'm sympathetic. It's hard to buy winners. And so we dude, talked it, about it's, it's hard. It's not just in the United States. This is a global phenomenon. There's a stock in Europe. There's only two large semi-producers in Europe. One is ASML, which does the litho- laser-like lithography. They have patents. They're like the best in the world. The other is ST Micro, I think. Look at a chart of ASML. It doesn't look anything like Europe. It looks like no. the semis. Wow. This is a global phenomenon, Taiwan semis. I mean- Josh, if I had to give my money to, if there were two technicians, and of course, nothing works all the time, it's going to, you know, whatever, whatever. And one of them was a bottom fisher who was patient and had a process and didn't just- catch falling night, but waited for a higher low, you know, or there was just a person who was like, no, 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 F all that. I just buy winners. I just buy stocks that are going, that are trending higher. And, and my sell discipline is X, Y, Z. Most technicians do the latter. I, yes, they do. I'd give my money to the latter person 10 out of 10 times. It's really difficult to pull the trigger on something that's up 80% over the last 12 months. And those are the yeah. winners. The biggest, that's the biggest buy signal on earth. It's the biggest buy signal. Yeah, nobody wants to buy those. <laughs> Because it sounds so stupid. I missed it. I'm a donkey. I can't buy it now. Because buy low, sell high is permanently ingrained. It's it's buy low, sell high. Those are the four. Sounds like it makes sense. Those are the four most dangerous words in investing. Buy low, sell high. Dude, that's a take. No, for real. No, I don't think so. Yes, I'll debate. Uh, We let's put a pin in that one too. Duncan, I hope you're remembering all these things we're putting pins in. Lots of Uh, pins. I want to debate that with you. I'm not, but I have to think about it first. Okay. Uh, let's do make the case, and then I have a mystery chart for you. What are you picking right. tonight? So, I think we did a good job earlier in the year, or the market did a good job uh, doing what we hoped it would have done, with the argument of it's just seven stocks, and we said, yeah, that would be concerning if the rest of the market were rolling over. Yeah, it was not true. If the rest of the market were rolling over we would have been saying something different. We would have said, yeah, this is this is a pretty textbook top. That's not what happened. The market was doing, it wasn't doing great. There was a big gap, but the RSP was doing fine. And now the RSP is up 9%. And I'm talking about the equal weighted index. Is out, the Dow is up 12.5%. The Russell 2000 is up 9%. So I'm going to make the case that into 2024, the rest of the market catches up. Charts, please. So this is the gap that I'm talking about. 
The S&P, as we all know, is kicking the shit out of the equal weight, although not 9% not so bad. Next almost chart, the, please. Almost the whole year. Uh, I like this. I'm getting constructive on the rest of the market. Looks good. You think this, that, a, you think this is going to break out? This is the I, equal I, I weight? Do. I do. Okay. I do. So if it, if it does- There are no triple tops. If it does, it'll only be because pharmaceutical, uh, biotech, pharmaceuticals, finance, industrials are, are going to have a great first quarter. It's the only way it's going to happen. Energy? The only sector- only sectors we, that haven't gone up a lot that are really big. We need energy. Energy is no, not dude, big enough. RSP, dude. RSP. Oh, no, I know, but I'm just. But forget that. I'm just thinking about the overall market. No, I can't RSP forget that. Work. I'm making the case. It's RSP. All right. Equal weight. Pull the trigger. Pull no. the trigger. I have a. Uh, I have a mystery chart for you, and I think you're in this trade. So I had to make it a little bit harder than we normally do. Chart on. This is. <laughs> This is maybe too. Uh, this is a sub-industry index ETF. So this is publicly traded. Uh, I, oh, I think know we're showing is. it to you with a 50-day moving average. This is KRA. But I had to t I look at you. Look at you. I don't know this anymore. All right, but look at you. You did that without the prices. Do you realize that? That's what do you mean? Do. That's no, good. I don't need the price. I know the patterns, bro. Look you at March. The, look at March 2023. You like Coco the gorilla. You know the, the shapes. I know that higher low. All right. I want bought to show you one more it. thing with this. Go ahead. This is Ari Wald. So to your point, um, this is Russell 2000 in the top pane. The bottom pane is the regional banks. Uh, if, if this catches fire, it's probably because a lot of other areas of the market are doing well. Um, he says... Uh, oh, looking ahead, a breakout above KRE's July peak would likely lift the Russell 2000 higher and in turn catalyze the bull cycle's long-awaited broad-based breakaway. In summary, our analysis indicates the next leg of the advance is underway and should carry the S&P 500 to a new cycle high. He's seeing more breadth, more participation. So that is, I'm in that camp, and people are not people are not ready for financial. From your lips out. to God's ears. If you're right, everyone everyone let's listening go. and watching is going to be pretty uh, pretty happy. All right, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thanks to all of you out in podcast land listening. We we appreciate you guys. Smash that like button before we go. That number is looking awfully low. If you're listening on the app, give us a review. Take you 10 seconds. Where's the koala uh, bear? I don't know. But hey, everybody. <laughs> did you know <laughs> that tomorrow is Wednesday, which means another all new edition of my favorite podcast, Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben, followed by Ask the Compound on Thursday, Ben and Duncan. And then another all new edition of the Compound and Friends to end the week. We appreciate you rocking with us. We'll see you soon. Good night. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. 
Ratholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.